have hit pause on our Luke series and we're digging into a new book of the Bible this summer, the book of Esther, that makes absolutely no mention of God. Ten chapters, 168 verses with no mention of God. But this book shows us the sovereignty of God at work in all things and over all things. From those in the highest places of power, he rules over them. To those who feel like they have no power, he's at work for them. Oh, you're going to see this summer as we go through the book of Esther like never before. And some of you need to get it. You need to turn off the TV and cease reading blogs and get this. God is in control of who is in control. Ah, yes, yes, yes. God is in control of who is in control. He always has been. Buckle up. He is Right now, yes, right now, and he always will be. That's what the Bible teaches all through the Bible. But here's what I love. It's taught all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but we have a book here that puts it on display in a most glorious way. Go with me to Esther chapter 2. The book of Esther chapter two, and if you need to use your index, do so. But then put a place marker there because we're gonna be here all summer. Book of Esther chapter two. You follow along as I've been reading in verse one. After these things, what things? Well, if you are here last week, then you know. After his amazing debacle and drunken stupor of 180 days of putting on display his own pomp and glory, And then he decided to call for Queen Vashti and to trot her around as a trophy wife. And she said, I'm not coming. After that humiliation. But actually, there's more. Here's what I love about the Bible. And I keep trying to show it to you as often as I can. The Bible is a book of history, not fairy tales. So here's what you need to understand. Chapter 2, verse 1. After these things is happening four years after chapter 1. It's four years later after that big party. You see, Brad, how do you know? Chapter one, verse three says, the party happened in the third year of his reign. When I read our section for today, chapter two, verse 16 says, this is the seventh year of his reign. Well, guess what else? You don't just read the Bible to learn what's going on with this man. This man's name is actually Xerxes. Starts with an X. Ahasuerus was simply a Persian title that was given to many rulers. His name is Xerxes. You can read about him in history. Real guy. So even though he had 127 provinces, we read that last week in chapter 1, he decided to reach some more and he tried to conquer Greece and he got his butt kicked. And he got sent home in a most humiliating way. So now he's licking his wounds and after these things... He's really down. He's kind of regretting the whole Vashti thing also. We're going to read it in a minute. You'll see the way it's worded. And so here we've got a king just lying around the palace, listening to country music, drinking cheap tequila, and he's really, really down. And you don't want mean kings feeling low because you don't know what they might do to boost themselves. And so his advisors say, ooh, 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 before you kill a bunch of people or do something heinous, how about we have a empire-wide beauty contest and bachelorette search for you? 
Here we go. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, ooh, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem. See, here's the other thing. There's a historian, not a Bible guy, named Herodotus. He records this event. He talks about this, it happened. He says that between 400 and 1,000 young women were chosen for this deal. So all the provinces of his kingdom to gather the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Verse five, now there was a Jew in Susa. Now here's what I love. Later in this message, you're going to hear what seems like a very offhanded, casual, superficial remark is essential, historical, and critical. This is no accident that there's a Jew in Susa. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. You see, in the Bible, you can find a record of the Jews being conquered by the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and Mordecai, his family was drug away when Nebuchadnezzar conquered them. And then the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. So now he's living under a Persian rule, but his family was carried away during the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar. You can read all about that in Daniel. History, you guys, the Bible is not a fable. It's history. Verse seven, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Don't say you're a Jew. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, so all the women chosen from all over this empire that stretched from Ethiopia to India were prepared with cosmetics and myrrh and water for 12 months, and then you had one night with the king. So this guy, if it's 400 women, a different woman each night for over a year. So don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, this must have been a huge privilege. Not. No. 
Now, when the turn came for each woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So understand this. They just did a search. They've got all these young women who are contestants in the first harem with Haggai. After you had one night with the king, you went into a second harem that's kind of like big lots. Now you're just there unless he ever calls for you again. Don't, don't make a mistake and think she went on back to her house because she wasn't. You would never leave again. Now you're a part of this concubine. He may never call for you. Unless he calls for you by name, you'll never see him again. But you're not going home. You're not going home. Verse 14. In the evening she would go in. In the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's unit, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. This explains why later in Esther this summer you'll see when people said to her, when Mordecai said, just go to the king and let him know what's about to happen to the Jews. And she's like, eh, you're not supposed to go unless he calls for you. In fact, the rule was come without being called, you die. Super nice guy. When the turn came for Esther, verse 15, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, in here we get time stamping. This is history, you guys. Fables aren't written this way. Greek mythology is writ- not written this way. The Bible's full of names and dates and places that can be checked, and it all is accurate. When Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins that he's so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants it was Esther's feast he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity So what can we learn about who's really in control when you feel like your life or this world is out of control. Number one, God's plan, you guys. You'll see it all through this book and you see it in the Bible. God's plan is in place. Even when you think your life has been derailed by the choices of others that you could not control. I'm where I am because of somebody else. This is not what I chose. This is not what I want. This is not what I dreamed about. Listen to me, God's plan is in place even when you think your life's been derailed by the choices of others you could not control. What about you today? As you consider your life where you are. Now, if you're super young, you may still be excited and thinking, I have plans, I have dreams, and here we go. Just keep having birthdays. 
and you'll understand what I'm about to say. When you consider where you are today versus where you meant to be or thought you would be by now. I just thought I always welcome to life where you are versus where you meant to be or thought you would be by now. Do you find yourself feeling because here's what we tend to do about why we're not where we meant to be. Do you find yourself feeling like other people and powers and decisions and circumstances have all determined and dictated for me the place where I am now and the person I am now? Listen to me. If that's you, you're not the first to feel that way. And stay with me. The Bible was written for people like you. The Bible was written for people like you, my friend, because the Bible is not just a book of history. Guess what else? The Bible is a book of reality that does, it's not a fairy tale that airbrushes away pain and injustice, not at all. In fact, the Bible is a book that invites us over and over, if you read it, you'll see it, not just once, but over and over, invites us into the raw and broken world of people like Esther and Mordecai and Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah and so many others, you guys, so many others who spent years of their lives, even decades responding to what was being done to them rather than making their own choices. Bible's filled with people like that. I imagine there's some of you sitting here in a room this size that have troubling stories right now. Troubling stories about a situation at work that has affected you greatly. It's affected you greatly, and it even limits now what you can and cannot do. It's beyond your control. Someone made promises that have not been kept. A decision was made that was not just or fair in any way, but it's affected you. A coworker or even a superior, perhaps, has slandered and maligned you in a way that has now limited and maybe even redirected the course of your career. You're on a different path now because of someone else. Maybe you're living with the pain of a failed friendship that's impacted your entire network of relationships. The ripple effect of this event, this hurt is wide. Someone gossiped behind your back and spread lies about you. Someone you trusted and opened up to shared personal information about you that has changed the way others see you now. Or maybe someone, this is so hot today, maybe someone who's just ghosted you in a way that's left you wounded and wondering, what in the world is going on? What is going on? And sadly, my guess in a room this size is far too many of you have a painful story about your family 
parents, a mom or a dad who abused you instead of protecting you and caring for you, a husband or wife who's been unfaithful in a way that has hurt you on the deepest level, a divorce that you didn't want, that you didn't see coming, a divorce that has left you rocking and reeling, trying to pick up the pieces and trying to figure out how do I do life now? Or maybe as a pastor, I'm just hearing this left and right now in our church family. Maybe it's an adult son or daughter that has cut you off, will not let you see the grandkids, and you don't even know what you've done wrong because they will not tell you. They won't tell you. Or maybe some of you here are just overwhelmed by the direction of our culture, our country, and our world. As decisions are being made, laws are being passed, rulings are being handed down at breathtaking speed that change. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I would vote for. If someone had asked me, I wouldn't say, yeah, let's do that. That changes what I can do, what I can say, and even how I live in my own country. If that's you here today, then God has something he wants you to see in the book of Esther. God has something he wants you to see in the book of Esther because God understands something about power that we do not. You ready? Something about power that we do not. You do not have to be boisterous, loud, and braggadocious to be in control. You say, I I don't think God's in control. Hey, just because God's not loud about it doesn't mean he's not in control. You do not have to be boisterous and braggadocious to be in control. And we see that so often. Let me help you a minute. Those that are boisterous and braggadocious are actually very weak, insecure people. And our God is not weak or insecure. So he does not have to go around flexing and demonstrating his power and talking constantly. That person that you work for that reminds you constantly, I'm in control, is a weak person. That husband that tells his wife constantly, yeah, I'm the head, I'm the head, I'm the head. Yeah, you're an idiot. When you're really the loving person with authority, you don't have to talk about it. That celebrity, that athlete or that celebrity that creates scenes in restaurants and places saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Is a weak little person. Our God is not weak or insecure. Therefore, stay with me. An unseen, silent God is still at work in the details, working all things together for his glory and our good. Do not mistake silence for his absence and do not equate darkness with inactivity. I don't see anything. I guess he's not doing anything. I don't hear anything. I guess he's not on this. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. Let me help you. The Bible says we walk by amazing, spectacular things we see in here constantly. We walk by. Say it louder. Now live it. We're done. Oh, God. No. 
But I mean, we've got these Bible verses that we know, and then we chafe and carry on expecting it to be different. He never said, oh, here's what will keep you going. Constant, amazing God sightings. Well, that's God. Oh, there's an open door. Oh, wow. Boom. You may go your whole life and have a handful or no, no amazing moments. Guess what? Welcome to the God of the Bible. Because here's the mistake people make. Do you realize in redemptive history, there are actually very few seasons where miraculous was happening left and right when Jesus was here? Makes sense. Elisha, Elijah, but the bulk of scripture, get a hold of this, shows us people living just like we do today. Stop saying, oh, I wish more of the miraculous. If we just had more of the supernatural miraculous, we'd see people getting saved. The Bible doesn't show that, and God doesn't need that. This is what the bulk of redemptive history looks like, and God gives us the book of Esther to drive it home to us. Even when you can't see his hand and don't hear his voice, God is always at work. He's not idle. He's not idle. And it's true even, here's what's hard for us. It's true even when it looks like wicked people are in control. You get it all through the Bible, you guys. The mistake you make because you're watching too much news and reading other things beside your Bible, start reading this and you'll just see, oh my goodness, the people of God have lived under wicked people continually throughout history and it did not stop God from doing what God is doing and it won't stop him today. He's at work, he's on the move and he's ready to use his people just like he used Esther and Mordecai and so many others. Letter A, You see, Mordecai, I hope you realize, was living a life that had been chosen for him, not decided by him. We love to have a life that I'm where I am because I made a bunch of decisions and here I am. Be careful with Bible characters. We tend to think, oh, they they had it just like we do, you guys. Mordecai is in the middle of living a life that's been decided for him. By other people. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Everything about that, you guys, is a resume that indicates this guy should be in Jerusalem. And he's actually a somebody. You recognize that word, Kish? He is a direct descendant of the first king of Israel, King Saul. That's his family. He was supposed to be in Jerusalem. Why is he not? Well, let's keep reading. Whose name was Mordecai, who had been carried away from Jerusalem. Among the captives carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Are you picking up on a key word? When the Bible repeats itself, you guys, I look for it. Don't sit there and think, oh, God needed a better editor. He's repeating himself. No, he's repeating himself for a reason. Not once, not twice, but three times carried away. Why? 
Because God wants us to understand that this 50-year-old man, that's what he is. This 50-year-old man is living a life that has been characterized by passive verbs. As others have determined and dictated for him where he would be now in life. He has made very few choices for himself. He is likely a second or third generation exile that's been living in a strange and foreign land. He's a Jew. He never intended to be in exile, thousands of miles from home. He never intended to be trying to raise an orphan girl in the capital of a dark and pagan empire ruled by godless and ruthless men. Again, that also should help you. Whatever your thoughts are on our current United States administration, who's at the helm, you guys, get over yourself. It has been far more godless and ruthless and wicked. And Christians have lived under those regimes and have actually lived for the glory of God and have made a difference. We do not have to have an administration that aligns itself with us for God to be for us. Woo! Grow up! Get your big boy pants on, your big girl pants on, and read your Bible. He's with us in it, and God is up to something, and his main goal is not our comfort. It's making us more like Christ and accomplishing his purposes. And very, what's God's number one purpose right now? To harvest lost souls so they don't go to hell. Guess what? Could it be that there could be a greater harvest of lost souls when America is a more frightening place? When, when they kicked out all the missionaries in China in the 50s and, and all Christians said, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'll tell you what happened. The church of Jesus Christ exploded. Exploded. Now that they, they can't even stop it. It happened without leadership in a time that the culture meant to end Christianity. It had the opposite effect. God can grow his kingdom and most often does grow his kingdom during times of adversity. As the people of God walk by faith, not sight, and know that he's with them, with them in it and up to something. What about Esther? Well, don't make a mistake here. Like my dad, a couple summers ago when I went home to see him, he's like, ooh, I got a movie I want you to watch with me. And I'm like, okay. It was like some little Hallmark Hallmark version of Esther called A Night with the King. Not portrayed the way it should be. This is not a special thing, dad, but I just spared him. He's in his 80s. A Night with the King. Oh, my goodness, you guys. This is not like, yay, I got chosen. Esther's life just went from bad to worse. She was already an orphan, being raised by her cousin in a harsh and foreign land. But when King Ahasuerus decides to have an empire-wide beauty contest, bachelorette contest, Esther gets snatched up by the palace police as they're going from city to city, taking the most beautiful virgins into custody. Look at verse 8. If you would read the Bible, it would help you know what you should feel. Now look at verse 8. So when the king's order... 
and his edict were proclaimed. I don't know about you. Usually when I see the word edict, I don't think fun lies ahead. Edict was proclaimed. And when young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace, put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Skip down to verse 16. Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus. Notice this event in her life is captured by two passive verbs, taken. And what I think are two frightening words, custody. Now, do either one of those words signal to you something really exciting lies ahead? I've been taken into custody by an edict. But listen, all those words do describe what it feels like for a person who's been caught up in and swept along by circumstances that are beyond their control, taken carried away. Both Mordecai and Esther in this short little passage, five passive verbs, carried away, carried away, carried away, taken, taken. Because those verbs describe life for someone who is just being swept along by other people and can't stop it. You think about what's happening to Esther right here as a 20-year-old girl. Someone else is making decisions for you, and you just lost your freedom to decide who you want to be and what you want to do with your life. And, oh, don't make a mistake here of thinking for a minute that this might have been some kind of great option for, for Esther of getting out of poverty and into the palace. Everyone in that day, read history, everyone in that day understood what palace life was like for the women, notice plural, of the king. This was not fun. This was not great. You, were ne- you would never go home again because once he'd had you, it would be a disgrace for him to think anyone else could have. You'll never have a husband. You'll never have kids You'll never have a home. Whatever your dreams were, it's over. You might be living in some measure of splendor in the palace, but you are desolate. You are lonely. You are cut off from the rest of the world. And oh, imagine, imagine the drama of four or 500 other women. Yay. Who were all so beautiful they were chosen. Oh, a lot of drama, a lot of angst, a lot of loneliness, a lot of desolation, a lot of longing for home and a lot of time on your hands to think about what you thought you were going to be doing with your life. This is not a blessing. Joining the king's harem was not the stuff of fairy tales because you would never see him again unless he called for you by name, which was highly unlikely since he had hundreds, if not thousands, of women in his harem. And to top it off, I hope you sense what's missing here. You know, we've got places in the Bible, and it's wonderful. We're like, oh, my goodness, Peter got thrown into prison, and whoo, angels showed up. Chains fell off. Gates began to open, and Peter knocks on the door where the Christians are praying, and they don't even believe it's him. Can't be him. Oh, powerful prayers, really believing. That's the only record we have of that. But we love to tout that around. It's like, that's normative. 
James got taken by the same king and he was killed. That's how that ended. John the Baptist got taken and his head was lopped off and carried on a platter into a dance room because the king loved this girl that was dancing. said, I'll give you anything you want. She said, I'll take the head of John the Baptist. No angel spared him. Nothing intervened. He lost his head because some teenage girl danced and pleased the king. This is what is normative in the Bible, you guys. And even Peter, who experienced an angel leading him out of the prison, died being crucified upside down. No angel delivered him. So don't hear me saying I'm not excited about these places in the Bible that are like, do hear me saying, stop trying to make it normative and expecting your life to look like that. And if it doesn't, I don't know how to live for God. I don't know how to live for God. Esther is in a time of redemptive history. This whole book, a time of redemptive history right here where no angel shows up. She doesn't get an angel. No dream is given. No word of hope is prophesied by some prophet that says, thus says the Lord, be encouraged, Esther. Here's what's about to happen. Nope. And there's no miraculous deliverance for Esther. What about you? Maybe, maybe you've been guilty of at times reading your Bible and when you're in those places saying, oh my goodness, where's my visit from an angel? Where's my dream? Where's my vision? Where's my word of prophecy? Where's my miraculous deliverance? Why doesn't it happen like that today? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I had a guy come up to me after the first service, and he wasn't arguing with me. But he'd been on dialysis since he, since he was ill, and now all of a sudden he's not. They said, we've never seen this before. Praise God. He's not on dialysis. God did that. But I'm telling you what. Our church is full of people on dialysis that it doesn't mean that's going to happen for everybody. And it doesn't mean he prayed harder and he had the right formula and he said in Jesus' name or he did whatever, God chose to heal him. But more often than not, God chooses to leave us in it and give us his presence and his grace. You're like, "Uh, I'll take the deliverance. I know, I know. Even the Apostle Paul, right? You know, there, there's nonsense that's out there on the television, Christian television and best-selling books. Like, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be in that wheelchair. You haven't prayed with faith. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Apostle Paul, you think he had some faith? Yikes. His own illness, whatever it was, a thorn in the flesh, he so wanted it removed. He begged God three times and God said, my he didn't say you haven't prayed right. He didn't say you have, you've disappointed me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in. That's what's most normative through redemptive history. And today, God's with us in it. Oh, the book of Esther's in the Bible so that you'll know God is with us and is working in and through us even when you don't hear anything miraculous and don't see anything spectacular. John Piper understood this when he said, it's so true, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of three of them. Here's what we need to get a hold of you guys. God is always at work 
And he does not just traffic in the spectacular, the extraordinary. I hear people say, and I get it, they'll say, that was a God thing. Literally, you ought to go through your whole day and say, that's a God thing. That's a God. Everything's a God thing, you guys. God is not just a part of certain things when there's sizzle and sound. Our world's all about sizzle and sound. Our God is much more the silent, unseen God at work among weak people that he leaves in the very same circumstances and says, I'm with you and I want to use you. What about you? Maybe today you're wondering, where is God and how could, how could any of this possibly be good that I'm going through right now? That's our other problem is our definition of good. If we can't think of how this could be good, it ain't good. God doesn't operate that way. You wondering? Maybe it's those kids right now in this season of life that you just can't handle. And I don't know what season it is, but I got news for you. Every season has its own challenges, right? When they're waking you up all night long because they're little, you think, oh, I'm so tired. Yeah, well, then they start walking and they stick their finger in an outlet. Oh, I'm exhausted with toddlers. Oh, they turn into teenagers. It's like, oh, this is so hard. Oh, young adults. Every season has its own challenge. I mean, I, I'm thrilled now at this season. Like, they're gone. <laughs> they're gone. Oh, but even then, they've got my garage door code, and they come back, and they steal my extension cords and my tools and my stuff. I'm like, oh, you're driving me crazy. I'm going to change this code. It's like, where is my extension cord? Where's my good trimmer? Where's my favorite screwdriver? Where are my wedding shoes? I had a wedding the other day. I keep them. You imagine Brad Bigney. I have stuff in his place. No wedding shoes. I text everyone, all five of them. Like, it's always slow to respond. You know, it's like, eh, that might be me. It's like, bring them back. Like, now I got a wedding in two hours. Like, don't take my stuff. Buy your own stuff. It's my stuff. Don't steal from your dad. But I digress. It's like... Go buy your own stuff. Oh, that marriage that's so disheartening. This is not what I had in mind at all. It's not my dream come true. That job that's so mundane. Tell Oprah, yeah, every job is not like my passion. Like that's why they pay you money because you actually don't love it. The things you love, you would do for free. If you loved it, they wouldn't have to pay you. Great, it's called a hobby. So you do your hobby for free, you do your job for money, and there's parts of it you don't like. This is how the system works. But we got a culture that's just, just costs so much. Don't do anything you don't love. Shut up. It's called work. I hope you love parts of it. But listen to me. I don't love all my job. I just said that. There are parts I love, and I keep leaning in and persevering and saying, oh, God, help me to keep doing this because I do not love all of this, and it doesn't seem to match my gifts. It's not what I wake up thinking, yay, I get to do that. That job that seems so mundane. That health issue that's so debilitating, you think, it limits me now. I could, I could be so much better and serve God without it. Or maybe it's just the relenting pressure of trials that won't let up, and you can't see any good purpose for it. Listen to me. 
whether you see him or not, whether you see his hand in it or hear anything spectacular in it, God is with you. Because get this, God traffics in the mundane as much as the spectacular. Oh, God delights in the ordinary as much as the extraordinary. And get this, you ever heard that phrase, God moves in unusual ways? Oh yeah, he does. I got some better news. And God moves on uneventful days. God moves on uneventful days. At the end of your most uneventful day, God has been at work in your life. All over it, all in it. Everything doesn't have to be spectacular, extraordinary. Praise God, because the bulk of our lives, you guys, will fall in the category of ordinary. You realize the bulk of the Christian life is comprised of taking the next step. Taking the next step by faith and serving in the midst of ordinary, in the midst of mundane, in the midst of I don't understand this, in the midst of this doesn't make sense, in the midst of this is not where I thought I would be. Well, it may not be where I thought I would be, but if you're a believer, he's with you right there. Just because it doesn't match your script for your life doesn't mean you lost God. He can't be there. Oh, he's there. He's there. He's there. And what we want from him most is that he would demonstrate that he's for us by delivering us out of it. Every now and then it happens. But what he usually does is gives us grace and favor in the midst of it. That's my second point. God's favor can find you in the midst of some of the most unlovely and unlikely places. You realize that? God's favor can find you in the midst of some of the most unlovely and unlikely places. This is not pretty. This is not easy. This is not good. His favor can find you there. Right there. Right there. Three times in this passage, we're told that Esther was finding favor and grace in the eyes of those around her. Look at verse nine. And the young woman pleased him. That's the head eunuch, Haggai, and won his favor. Verse 15, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women and won, she won favor and grace in his sight. So what's going on? In the midst of what looks like shattering circumstances where she might have concluded, I've been abandoned by God. Where's this great God I learned about as a girl from the Old Testament? God is good. God is love. God is powerful. In the midst of what might look like shattering circumstances where you conclude I've been abandoned, the author of Esther introduces a theme that you will see through the rest of the book now and you will see in the Bible. Favor and that God can give you favor and grace. He's giving her favor and grace in the eyes of people that should despise her. And, and be, be careful here. Just like there's a silence, there's absence of any mention of God, I think it's intentional that there's no, no, no description given as to why she got this. Oh, she was so faithful. Oh, she was so, uh-uh. It's not about Esther. It's just God gave it. God gave it. God gave it. You don't earn his grace. You don't deserve his grace. He gives it. He gives it. Nowhere does the text credit Esther with earning or deserving this. Instead, the passage just screams that this unseen, silent God is on the move 
sovereignly turning the hearts of powerful people towards this young girl. It's the same thing you see in the lives of other people in the Bible that looks like they've been abandoned, that looks like they're crushed by circumstances. Here's a young girl, Esther. We got a young boy, Joseph, Genesis, 37 to 50. You'll see the life of Joseph. A devastated teenage boy that's been sold into slavery by his... You think you have a dysfunctional family? This family was a mess. I mean, and the the scriptures record his brothers hated him. And then there's a place that says, and they hated him all the more. And they hated him. And they sold him to a group of traveling Midianites. Can you imagine that? I don't even speak their language. And they just sold me. And I'm riding off on a camel to I don't know where, screaming, guys, guys, guys. Oh, but it gets worse. You know, we tend to think, but if I hunker down and I decide I'll please God where I am, even though it's not where I want to be, he'll bless me. Well, he gets bought by Potiphar and he's a servant in Potiphar's house and he's serving well, but Potiphar's wife decides she wants to go to bed with him and he does the right thing. He runs and says, no, how can I do this? Potiphar's given me so much except you. I can't do this. And she lies when Potiphar gets home and says, he raped me. Potiphar believes her. And now he goes from house servant to prison dungeon. Things just got worse, even though he did the right thing. Could that happen? Yes. But just like I'm trying to help you see here, four times in Genesis 39, I've got them highlighted in orange in my Bible. It's not in your outline, but you might want to write this down. Four times it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, verse 23. Now we tend to think the way I know the Lord is with me is he would deliver me from this. No, the Lord was with Joseph. And don't make a mistake. If you think you know the the story of Joseph, you can read Genesis 37 to 50 in like 30 minutes. Joseph lived that for 17 years. He was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery. He was 34 before someone, the cupbearer, in the presence of Pharaoh said, oh, you know what? There is a guy. And then he was called and began to serve as number two. But 17 years, you guys, is a long time to not know what is going on. How can this be good? How could God be in this? What could, be, what could possibly be good about this? I must be abandoned. The Lord was with Joseph. And I don't know where you are right now or what you're going through, but if you are a child of God and you've put your trust in Christ and you have a robe of righteousness and he's your high priest interceding for you day and night, the Lord is with you in it. You are not alone. I don't know who's against you, but he's for you. He's for you, and he doesn't have to demonstrate it by being loud and spectacular. You see the same thing in the life of Daniel. Teenager, drug off to Babylon. And in Daniel 1.9, it says, and God gave Daniel favor. Now, he's still in exile. He's still a captive, but God gave him favor in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked man, but listen to me. Oh, 
way beyond Esther and Mordecai and Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah. Listen to me, when we talk about the favor and grace of God, how do I know I have the favor and grace of God? We have it so much better than they did, you guys. Because we today have the spirit of God living in us. You realize in the Old Testament, the spirit of God just would come upon them for special occasions and help them. Remember the disciples said to Jesus, oh, please don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. He said, oh, if I don't go, I can't send the helper. Oh, when Jesus was here in flesh, you had to figure out where he was. You had to get yourself to Capernaum. You had to get yourself to Nazareth. You had to figure out where he was healing next or you wouldn't see him and hear him and know him. And now you don't have to find him. He lives in you. You're not dealing with those little kids all by yourself. You're not on that campus by yourself. You're not in that horrific job by yourself. You're not going through that health issue by yourself. The spirit of the living, resurrected Jesus lives in you and no one can take it from you. That's what he's given us. And you have the promises of God Oh, much greater promises, new covenant promises because of a resurrected Savior. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, let me show you what I'm talking about that you have, that Joseph didn't have, Esther didn't have, Mordecai didn't have, Daniel didn't have. Romans 8 verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself. Look at me. I've had times that I've been so overwhelmed by either something that's afflicting Vicky, by a kid thing, by a church thing, by my own confusion that I don't even know how to pray. I can't even think clearly enough to to have full sentences. Our God doesn't say, if you can't give me a subject and a verb with an object, get out of here. Do you realize you can go into his presence and just groan? Your groan makes it to his throne. That's what this verse is talking about. The spirit can intercede for us with groanings, groanings, too deep for words. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we hope No, 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 we know. We know that for those who love God, do you love God? Are you his child? Are you an adopted son or daughter? For those who love God, some things, how many things? All things work together for good. Now, he's not saying all things are good. Slander's not good. Abuse is not good. All kinds of things are not good. He's saying, I can sovereignly supersede and even work through the sinful choices of others to work good in your life. Now, here's part of what, why he can do that, because he can tell you what good is. Look at it. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his own son. Whatever you makes you more like Jesus is God's definition of good. And even in the life of Christ, did he suffer? Was he wronged? 
and we're his followers. These things conform us to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To those whom he predestined, he's called. And those whom he's called, he's justified. If you're here and you've put your trust in Christ, your sins have been wiped out. How many of them? All. And the righteousness of Christ has been applied to your account so that when God sees you, he sees the perfection of his son. You may, you may be wrong in all kinds of people's sight, but you're right in the sight of God. Justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's got that verb in the past tense, even though it hasn't even happened. Why? Because it's as good as done. Who he calls who he justifies, he will glorify. That person in your life cannot keep this from happening. God is going to finish what he started in your life. You are headed towards glory. You will be glorified. This will come to an end. This is a vapor. This is temporary and eternity is coming. It will happen and no one can stop it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't mean people won't be against you. They are. But he's saying in comparison, it doesn't matter. Oh my goodness, if God is for you, woo, doesn't matter who's against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's not a name it and claim it verse. You will not get a Lexus. That is, he will give you everything you need in that circumstance to persevere and please him. He'll give you everything you need. He'll give you everything you need. He's with you. He's working in you. And he'll give you everything you need. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's not saying none of those things will happen. He's saying those things just might happen to you. All of them. But they cannot separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. They cannot cut you off from the throne of grace. They cannot take the spirit of God from you. They cannot change your eternal final destination at all. And that loving Savior, you guys, that he's talking about right here, is coming back as King of Kings. Oh, these first two chapters in Esther are all about the power and glory and pomp of an earthly king. But there's a better king coming. There's a better king coming. Oh, far above King Ahasuerus is King Jesus who is still on his throne. King Ahasuerus is the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. King Ahasuerus Never tasted or experienced poverty or humility, but Jesus took on flesh and tasted both for us. Ahasuerus used his power for his own glory. Jesus used his power for our great good. Ahasuerus was a man who wanted to be God. Jesus was fully God and became man for us. 
Ahasuerus killed his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies, saving millions and millions of people. Ahasuerus died and was buried, but Jesus died and rose again, conquering sin and Satan and hell. The kingdom of Ahasuerus spread from India to Ethiopia, but the kingdom of Jesus includes people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. The kingdom of Ahasuerus came to an end, but the kingdom of Jesus will never end. He shall reign forever and ever. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Lord, thank you for those that have gone before us. There is a great cloud of witnesses men and women who have faced the same difficulties we have. And you use them in their weakness. Oh God, you are the same God who was sovereign over the history of all these other points that were so dark, so scary, so confusing. And you are our God now. Oh, reorient us. Reorient us. Reframe everything by your word. Help us to have eyes that see more than right here, right now. And and cling to the promises that you're with us, working in us, and working through us for your glory and our good. Use us in our weakness to be your people for such a time as this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.